this week on the Backtable podcast. I would say that the Venus Hatchetization is the new uh, opportunity, the new chance for these guys which were condemned to a major amputation. So far, we have these guys which we consider no options, which have patients with uh, non-end vessels at the level of the foot, or you have heavily calcified vessels or patients that cannot be treated. And also we have the other side of the coin, uh, with these sad guys, small arterial disease, we, you have big vessels, but not a uh, runoff at the level of the foot. So all of these guys, which uh, traditionally were condemned to a major amputation, now have a new chance. Because what we have done is just to connect the arterial flow into the venous flow in order to develop a new network, and then to increase TCPO2 at the level of the uh, wound, and then achieving wound healing. Hello everyone, and welcome to Backtable, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform like Spotify or even our website, backtable.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Really keep up with the latest updates and please give us feedback through comments. We love hearing from you. First, a quick word from our sponsors. One of the biggest challenges clinicians face is not related to devices or techniques. It's the workflow. For conditions like aortic emergency, PE, and stroke, outcomes are impacted because it takes too long for treatment decisions to be made and for patients to receive therapy. Viz AI leverages artificial intelligence to coordinate care and improve workflow and is trusted in over 1,000 hospitals across the U.S. and in Europe. The platform uses AI to detect disease, provide access to high-fidelity imaging and patient information, and allows you to communicate securely through the HIPAA-compliant communication tool conveniently on your phone, desktop, or within the radiology workstation. No more asking the ED to send you a grainy picture or making countless phone calls to activate your teams. Visit viz.ai to learn more. Treating patients with peripheral disease is rarely straightforward. The right atherectomy device should be versatile enough to help you meet these challenges. Rotorex atherectomy system is uniquely designed to help you address these complex challenges by modifying and removing plaque and thrombus from peripheral arterial lesions. This device is not for use in cardiopulmonary, coronary, cerebral, iliac, renal, or venous vasculature. To learn more, visit bd.com rotorex. Click the link in the podcast notes for instructions for use for indications, contraindications, hazards, warnings, and precautions. Now, back to the episode. I'm Sabine as your host today, and we have Dr. August Issa, a vascular surgeon all the way from Hospital de Cruces in Baracaldo, Spain. Welcome, August. Uh, thank you, Sabine. Thank you very much for your kind invitation. Oh, of course, of course. I mean, you have created this new way of percutaneous creation of distal DVAs or deep venous arterializations. That's what we're going to talk about. And and we talked about DVA. I talked about DVA on Backtable back in November 2020 with Fatty Saab. And we talked about proximal DVA and using off-the-shelf devices. But really, since you have created this, and I learned it from you, from your social media, from your webinars and all of this, and and it's really dramatically changed our practice and the availability of this procedure to all endovascular specialists. So I, I'm really excited. I literally, each one I do, I, I learn so much. So I have so many questions for you today. But before we go into that, I'd love to hear more about your background, 
and your current practice? Okay, I was uh, initially trained, I was born in Barcelona. So I was trained in, in Barcelona, Hospital del Mar. And then when I finished uh, my career, I just moved to Bilbao. I started performing vascular in a unit, which was uh, starting at uh, that stage. So I was lucky enough to have a lot of uh, colleagues which were already senior. They, they don't, uh, were eager to operate. So I had a lot of room to uh, finally develop my, my skills. And at some stage, I was uh, really influenced in the endovascular field because one of my professors back in Barcelona, Professor Vidal Barraquet, was quite ahead of his time because uh, he was one of the first guys performing endovascular in Spain. So uh, that's why probably my endovascular background uh, was uh, too acute at that stage, which was not really usual in Spain. Then I think I would say like thinking about game changers, I would say that definitely I moved to the dark side, to the endo side, and I basically lived all of the uh, open surgery. I would say like back 10 or 15 years ago, uh, first time I attended a Link. You know, Link is one of the big events in, in Europe, I would say the number one. Uh, and I was sitting there in the, in the auditorium, like 2,000 guys sitting there, no time for, even for, for peeing or having uh, wrapping something to eat. And Marco Manzi was there and he was performing a live case. And I was so shocked of what I saw there. Then uh, when I returned back, I definitely decided just to focus my career on uh, PAD and basically BTK and BTA. And it comes to these <laughs> days. That's amazing. You basically fell in love. You saw, you saw the live case at League. Yeah, definitely. I, I was shocked because, well, the thing is we are living in a sort of uh, era in which you can reproduce or copy almost everything. But that guy was performing sort of the source of magi magician. Everybody was slightly connected with what he did. And still, 12 years later, he's still probably the, uh, well, the guys from, uh, from Italy, the top ones. So they yep. can perform amazing things just 12 years later, so, which is, is still amazing. It's true. It's like magic, right? I mean, and, and literally this procedure that we're going to talk about today, vast, I think it's like magic and, and, and it's just amazing different techniques here and there can create such a durable and, and big difference. Um, in your practice, are you, so is it you or are, are you part of a group of vascular surgeons or, or how does your practice work? Well, basically, uh, we started a dedicated unit in BDK, BDA uh, procedures uh, in my institution. Uh, my colleague is Marta Lobato. You probably know her, her well because she's quite yes. a well-known uh, uh, panelist in a lot of events. Yes. So we work hand-to-hand. Uh, -hand. I'm really lucky uh, and blessed to have her uh, in our unit because uh, basically uh, it's like thinking on the same head. Yeah. It's like two bodies with the same head. <laughs> and uh, I will say like, I spend much more time with her than even with my wife. <laughs> it's a professional marriage and I I'm really lucky to have her. I, I have to say, I mean, Marta is so awesome too. There there's, for all our listeners today, if you're interested in doing this procedure after listening to this, I really recommend, you know, this YouTube clip of you and Marta, it's your webinar regarding distal deep venous arterial. It's, it's like 12 minutes long, but it is so well done and comprehensive. 
Yeah, I, I I have huge respect for both you and Marta, and 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 that that YouTube clip is perfect. Yeah, you know, th- we recorded that like four uh, years ago, something like that. Yeah, and you know what? At stitch, a guy from a company said, "Guys, you you basically need to record a webinar uh, regarding VAS to promote the technique." At that stage, we didn't even know what. A webinar was. Well, webinar has <laughs> just become quite popular with the pandemics and all of this stuff. But so like, we just said, like, yeah, yeah, we're going to re- uh, record a webinar. But we didn't know what a webinar was. So imagine, we are uh, quite uh, active in social media, you know that. Yeah. At that stage, we didn't even have an account in Facebook. So it was <laughs> like some stage uh, when we created the technique, uh, we decided that Publishing the technique in a high-impact uh, journal was a way, but in our experience, was not that amazing as you may probably think. Because if you just check it out, how many readers have read your paper, you will get amazed as like 50 in a year or something like that. Nothing. So we realized that we basically needed to uh, spread the word. And then we discovered that social media was uh, the way to go. And at that stage, I, I promise you, it's like, we started with our accounts that more or less like says we didn't have any idea how to deal with that. And look, look at that now. Yeah. And we have connected each other. Absolutely. Probably we are together here because of that. 100%. I remember seeing your video. You, you actually post a lot of really neat videos on techniques, not just this technique, but other recanalization techniques and everything. They're so educational and it's, yeah, it's social media and, and it's able to, connect so many people and distribute that knowledge. I, I was going to actually ask you, do you have like a repository of videos like for myself and our listeners to see or are they kind of just posted online on your socials? They basically post it on, online. We have an account uh, on YouTube, but to be honest, uh, there are not many stuff there. Basically, it's uh, a nice thing from social media. For me, it's like this immediate connection. So whatever you need, you got it there. If I had any issue, if I have any query, our MDT sessions, apart from the one well-known from Fadi, it's there. So I had any query about whatever, about DVA, I can just basically uh, post it. And top leaders, uh, huge experience uh, worldwide will answer you, which is amazing. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's broadened my knowledge. And exactly, we're here today because of being connected on social media. So well, let's get to the topic about DVAs. How many, before we get into the technique, but how many DVAs have you done, would you think, in general, in your practice? Well, we have performed more or less around 25, something like that, at home. But we have, a, do, we have done a lot of uh, proctorizing in Spain and in Europe. Probably we say like 30 or 40 extra uh, DVAs. So not a huge experience, but I would say that uh, once you have performed some of them, at least with our technique, everything is quite straightforward. Yeah, I would say in my practice, we've done about seven now of using your technique and I've learned so much stuff. Each one that I've done, I've, I've learned a lot. So for our listeners, we're saying deviate. What is deep venous arterialization? What is it, August? I would say that deep venous arterialization is the new uh, opportunity, the new chance for these guys which were condemned to a major amputation. So far, we have these guys, which we consider no options, which are patients with non-in vessels at the level of the foot, or you have heavily calcified vessels or patients that cannot be treated 
And also we have the other side of the coin uh, with these sad guys, small arterial disease, where you have big vessels, but not a runoff at the level of the foot. So all of these guys, which uh, traditionally were condemned to a major amputation, now have a new chance. Because what we have done is just to connect the arterial flow into the venous flow in order to develop a new network and then to increase TCPO2 at the level of the uh, wound and then achieving wound healing. And this is not new. This is like 100 uh, years. It's probably uh, older than the first bypass. We have reports at the beginning of the last century, but which uh, really has changed the whole thing. All of these percutaneous techniques, which were developed by Stephen Kuhn, and we definitely need to pay tribute to this bright mind. And all of this development during the last years in order just to increase forefoot perfusion by focalizing flow and trying to uh, treat effectively the valves. Got it. You know, we say this word distal and proximal. What does that refer to when we're talking about DVAs? Okay, there are two ways to perform DVAs, I would say like, or two locations. Basically, what we personally do is less if you decide to perform a proximal, which entails a connection with the uh, proximal aspect of the BDK vessels, mainly the posterior tibial artery or distal when you are performing the connection at the level of the ankle. And both have advantages and disadvantages, but we, what we have not seen yet is uh, which is better. Uh, we still uh, don't know. There's a lot of unknown or unsolved questions related to DVAs, and this is one of them. Uh, because if you have a look to the outcomes of proximal and distal DVAs, are pretty much similar in terms of limb salvage or uh, amputation-free survival. But isn't it true that surgical literature you know, when they were, they were doing these surgically, the distal was actually more preferred. Is that true? Yeah, I would say there are two aspects why it, this happens. The first one, I think I would say like proximal is usually related to the dedicated device, to the lymph flow device. And this is still an issue due to uh, the low availability and increased cost. But basically, I would say like uh, the main enemy, uh, which is really scares you when you're performing a DVA, this is unpredictability of the procedure. We still have, we still don't know which patients uh, will go to the right side, to the limb salvage, and which uh, ones not. And we're talking about more or less 60-70% limb salvage rate, which entails still 30-40% amputation rate. So uh, the main issue when you perform a DVA is what we call the storm after DVA. It's the, like related to the still syndrome, the ischemic still syndrome, the edema, uh, the overloading of the venous system. And what we have seen is that when you perform a distal DVA, this is decreased. I would say that uh, the systemic effect is lower compared with the proximal. And I think basically this is why most of the physicians prefer to go distally rather than proximally. Totally. And that's, that's a big point that the post-DVA storm is less seen. And that's what we saw in our practice too, that you don't have it as much. I also think the availability of the devices and the cost make a distal DVA so much easier to do. You know, otherwise you'd be using lots of stent grafts and everything in the proximal, but you have less product that you need to use on a distal one, which is another big plus, especially in our practice. Yeah, it is. And not only when you're performing the case itself, but also when you're thinking about redos and we have a thrombosis and you need to revascularize again a DVA, it's a lot easier with 
you just have performed a whole and an angioplasty because you just need to redo your angioplasty. Whilst if you have a graft, you need a thrombectomy device, a thrombolysis or whatever. Excellent point. That is true. Is there any reason you would actually pick proximal over distal now in your practice? Or are you solely doing distal, uh, percutaneous distal creation? Yeah, I think it's conditionated by uh, the cost itself, by the budget. But I would say that if I have a good inflow, and I can think that my inflow will stand time enough to achieve wound healing. And you know, for those who are not involved in DVAs, this is not like when you perform a standard arterial revascularization when you have outcomes in a few days or weeks. Mean wound healing time probably can be from four months to seven, depending on the different series. So uh, if I think that my inflow can stand for these four months, I go for distal uh, DVA. I have concerns about the inflow then probably I think about hybrid. As you know, I'm a vascular surgeon. So if I have a good venous vein, I perform a hybrid. And if I don't have venous vein, I will proximally, again, off the shelf because still uh, now we don't have lymph flow available in Spain. Yeah, and even here, it's, not, it's still under trial, so you can't really get lymph flow available here in States unless you're part of the trials. About the inflow, so say like you have an occluded posterior tibial artery. I know people have recanalized the occluded PTA and then created a distal DVA. Is that something you would you would recommend or if they're if you're yeah or you're worried that the inflow is not going to stay open because of that? Not at all, because it, it all depends on the quality of the posterior tibial. If I, I'm facing a super calcified posterior tibial, chunks of calcium, I'm really concerned about the outcome. I never go to, uh, in that direction. But if it is just an occlusion, you can perform urine canalization. Probably the patency rates of these uh, long occlusions uh, are longer than the patency rates of the proximal DVA itself. So you can perform urine canalization either intraluminal or subintimal. I'm not concerned about being uh, subintimal because once I get a connection in the vein, I have a new channel, subintimal channel that will connect with the vein. So definitely I would recommend if you have a good posterior tibial, even though it, it is occluded, you can perform your distal DVA uh, in your normal uh, way. Perfect. And wh why do we always prefer the posterior tibial? And, and, uh, and a follow-up question is gonna be, do you do these on the anterior tibial or even the perineal artery? Well, uh, scarcely uh, experience with uh, anterior tibial and posterior tibial. The main reason is that the best connection with the lateral plantar and the deep plantar venous arch is the posterior tibial. So sometimes the anterior tibial, you can feel tempted, but the connection with the deep venous system on the foot is not really well developed because you have mainly in the dorsal system, uh, the medial marginal vein, which is the superficial dorsal system, which is usually more developed than the uh, deep venous system. And the perineal sometimes is, has good connection, but I don't really have a lot of experience with perineal. Uh, we're still exploring uh, which is alternative to, for uh, the posterior tibial. But I would say in our experience with the anterior tibial, we have performed um, three or four in the anterior tibial. You need to have a good assessment of the venous system. And if you have a good connection on your arterial or a good anterior tibial vein, uh, well-developed, you can perform it there. This is no issue at all. Sure. Do you do anything to evaluate the venous anatomy prior to the procedure? Like, do you, do you scan the foot or anything else 
about the venous side? Yeah, well, we uh, systematically perform a, a venous ultrasound just in order to rule out any sort of prior DVT or whatever, and also to check the status of the main veins of the foot. But also, most of these guys are the result of a failed standard arterial attempt. So at that stage, we're facing these sad guys. We never perform a DVA as a first option. We always attempt a standard recanalization arterial attempt. And if we fail at that stage before leaving uh, the OR, we always perform a flavogram. This is because we are just already thinking about the next step. So this gives you uh, quite a lot of information. That's great. So you actually have a nice delayed angiogram showing the venous anatomy. Mm -hmm. Or directly puncturing the gratsophenous vein or the plantar vein or even the lesser uh, saphenous vein and inject at the level of the foot because we basically want to assess the connection with the arch, which is the main drainage uh, pathway. Okay, great. And then what type of wounds would you say are not good candidates for a DVA. For example, a calcaneal wound, is that still something that you could consider this procedure or is it only forefoot? Well, to be honest, I don't really like to perform DVA on guys with uh, heel ulcers, even though I've seen a lot of uh, good results, people polishing good results with these uh, orphan heels. But I would say the main, the, I think the main mistake you uh, usually commit when you are starting performing DVA is uh, you are not choosing the right candidates. So at the beginning of our series, we were uh, choosing a huge necrotic tissue, huge infection. So this sort of guys, you, I would never put it in a trial for a DVA and I would never indicate uh, the treatment. So I would say that nowadays, extensive, huge extensive necrosis or huge infection. Uh, we never consider these sort of guys for a DVA. Keep in mind that you will always need to spend uh, six to eight weeks uh, in order to achieve this new network. So if you have an extensive necrosis, probably this guy won't stand six or seven or eight weeks waiting for your, uh, this new remodeling of the foot. And also if you're dealing with infection, and uh, there's another part which has not to do with the anatomical uh, issue. It's the social uh, environment of the patient. Because keep in mind that these guys uh, will spend the next months on your clinics. We follow these guys weekly and they need to have a lot of support to attend your clinics, to uh, deal with all of these uh, specific uh, management, uh, wound dressing, all of this stuff. And if the patient is not really committed, with uh, the treatment itself, you are condemned to a failure. And Andrea Cassini, as a really close friend of mine, always says that whenever he assess a patient for a DVA, the first thing he says is like, you are going to see me more than your wife. <laughs> so if you are not uh, happy with that, you are not a good candidate. And that's definitely true. Yeah, I mean, patient compliance is so important there. I, you know, they have to want to really be there to continuously come for wound care. I like that comment. I'm going to steal that for my next uh, patient that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that same um, yeah. <laughs> screening question. <laughs> and it's really important to have this uh, multidisciplinary uh, approach because you need people dedicated, informed that what are you doing when you're facing the storm after DVA? The foot looks awful. 
And if you are not really uh, involved on in that and not aware of what's going to be the sequence of wound healing, you may probably uh, decide to chop this uh, leg. And, you know, talking with Miguel Montero, I think they, they, they got the sort of bracelets for these guys, ankle uh, bracelets, and they put like, don't chop this uh, leg or something like that. When I, when I saw that or land I, I i was like shocked like wow it's true what the, the main thing in the background is like if you are not used to see that sort of uh, food you may feel scared because the first week of uh, following a dva uh, feet look really awful the dva storm when does it peak what when do you when do you see it post creation of the dva sometimes it's even immediate and uh, the worst aspect of a storm after dva is what we call destination syndrome, which is a failure of the drainage of the food. So once you perform your connection, you need to keep it open. And then since you don't have developed the distal aspect of, of the runoff, the DVA just need to follow the circuit. And if you have any issue on the circuit or the drainage circuit, you have this hypertension of the venous side, you can end up having this huge necrosis and ending up in a major amputation in a couple of days. So you can have this storm from the very beginning, the very first days, and then usually following three, uh, four weeks, you are just arriving to a sort of plateau. And from there on, uh, things usually improve quite a lot. Yeah, and your management of the storm is what primarily? Is it like elevation, compression? What is your management for the post-DVA storm? Well, this has changed quite a lot over the time. This is a result of a lot of chatting with uh, colleagues and friends, with Miguel. And initially, we put these guys on, on resting, on leg elevation, even uh, diuretics. We initially also used the, the compressive transmetatalsal amputation. But nowadays, these guys are uh, encouraged to, uh, to walk in order to improve the Lejar system, which is the, all of the soul venous system. In, in order to improve the drainage. And most of them are weight-bearing uh, in the two or three days following the procedure. A quick word from our sponsors. For more than a decade, Reflow Medical has designed and engineered medical devices that respond to unmet clinical needs. The Wingman Crossing Catheter with its unique extendable beveled tip and an expanded indication for CTOs. The Specs LP, created to meet the need for a low-profile version of the Specs shapeable support catheter, and the new line of core catheters that answers the call for a suite of effective tools to use in challenging PCI procedures. Now, what about a situation that we've come into in my practice, and then after this we'll go into the actual technique, but what about someone who has a gangrenous digit and, and you've noticed they have SAD or the, there's failed uh, recanalization and you end up deciding to perform a DVA. Sometimes, I mean, that digit is infected. There's osteo. Is it okay to get the amputation, the TMA or the digital array amputation a few days following DVA? Or would you highly, would you, would you, would you say it's no, wait, wait? We usually wait unless you have an abscess or something like that. So if I had an abscess, what I would do is just to be to uh, perform an unlimited amputation, try to preserve uh, most of the tissue, and then wait for these six to eight weeks. 
And sometimes we perform uh, the trans uh, metatarsal amputation, but leaving the head of the bone in order just not to expose the medulla of the bone. And the, I, again, I learned that from Miguel. I know they, and Dr. Lipo, they like to do that. And I think it's really clever, just like a sort of a physical barrier. And then you can keep this guy with this exposed uh, head of the bone. And then whenever you need, you can perform your remodeling, which usually happens, like, as we have said, eight weeks following the procedure. Sometimes you feel just tempted, like, uh, let's do it. But uh, you usually regret to having done that. And another thing is when you perform, and I know you know this well, uh, a deployment uh, following a DVA is a nightmare, man. <laughs> like a lot of bleeding there. A <laughs> lot of bleeding. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. My podiatrists are like, oh, it, I mean, all the veins are arterialized. So we've thrown this word vast. I think I said it earlier. What, what does vast stand for? And then also I want to know on your YouTube club, you talk about vast one and vast two. What is that? Okay, we talk about uh, vast. Vast means uh, venous arterialization simplified technique. We want it to be posh, like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let me tell you how it all started, because this is really interesting. Tell me. We were basically working on low-cost reentry system in the FEMPOP segment. When we are in Supintima, you want to re-enter within, we, we are a humble uh, department. I live in a small city, in a no-name hospital, no-name country. So sometimes re uh, things are really tough. And uh, that's why I think that sometimes necessity is the mother of uh, like invention. So at that stage, we thought we were working on snares and balloons to perform this uh, low-cost re-entry device. So at some stage, I would say like this is back to 2017. We uh, were dealing with some cases, BDKVDA cases, that we were not able just to treat them. So we invited Mariano Palena to come along and we uh, selected this sort of guys we couldn't uh, have performed nicely. And then uh, we selected them for, for just to be treated by the best one. And she still hates us uh, because of that. Because at that stage... <laughs> it's the hardest cases. Yeah, at that stage, nobody was talking about sad or that sort of stuff. They were like, you can do it, you cannot. So unfortunately, he couldn't do these guys. And at some stage of, of, the, of the procedure, he mentioned, oh, you know what? There's a guy from Singapore, Stephen Cook, is doing this connection. We have heard about that. And he tried to perform a connection using the curve catheter and CDO wire just to break into the vein. But he failed. And this is the main issue of this technique because sometimes it's, it's really a blind technique. This is quite easy uh, if you can just accidentally get into the vein, but this is still a 20% failure rate about on this uh, maneuver. So we were full enough just to suggest uh, the big Mariano Hey, why don't you try this thing we are working on for, from the intimal whatever. Well, he was also full enough just to say, well, let's say yes to these guys. And we tried. And to be honest, we failed. And we were concerned uh, because we, uh, I was shocked. Like, why? Why we have failed? So he uh, flew back home and then we still kept thinking like, why, why, why? And at some things we realized that we have put the snare because nowadays we use two snares, but at that stage we use a snare and a balloon as it is described in, in the technique of the journal of endovascular therapy. And we realized that we have put this snare in the wrong position. And we started, we were, uh, I remember well, we were in a bar and we started just drawing uh, diagrams in a napkin 
Like, you know the, the story of Lionel Messi? He signed the contract with Football Club Barcelona in Buenos Aires in a napkin. And they still kept this napkin the, at the Museum of Football Club Barcelona. So we draw a lot of uh, diagrams. I just sent them to Mariano said, you know what, Mariano? I have, re- I have realized where was the mistake. That he may probably thought like, full guys. Then we tried again with a new case and we were right. Because uh, once we positioned the snare in the right uh, location, it worked. This was the, the beginning of the, this all of this messy thing, uh, the bus technique. So we started performing that in a distal location. We call one and two because, well, basically we, don't, we never say one and two, we say proximal or distal. The technique is basically the same. We use two snares and we follow the more or less the can-side approach, which is a well-known technique in, in interventional radiologists. You, when you perform tips or whatever, it's, it's used. To be honest, we didn't know anything about that because we are vascular surgeons. So we never heard about the gun side approach. You came up with the gun side technique on your own, basically, right? I mean, on those napkins, you figured out gun sight on your own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is like, but basically, uh, again, what we have done is just uh, change the way to make the connection because all of the uh, knowledge, all of the principles behind a percutaneous DVA were uh, developed again by Stephen Kuhn. So uh, we basically performed the connection and then we uh, tried to learn a lot of from Stephen Kuhn, all of these guys. I was really lucky to uh, met at some stage Bruno Migliara, who is a guy who is making the connection with uh, the Pioneer Catheter, the people technique from Peschiara. And that was, again, amazing because at some stage we were the two no-name guys which were uh, excluded from all of the meetings because, you know, and I don't blame them at all. Uh, Linflo invested so much money in marketing and I plus T and they were in all of the meetings talking about DVA and probably they didn't want to have anyone talking about off the shelf. This is quite reasonable. And uh, again, I don't blame them at all. Myself, I would have probably had uh, a sicarius just to kill all of these full guys that perform these off the shelf things. So we were complaining. I remember that, well, four years ago at the league meeting, and I met him. I said, oh, hi, I'm Bruno Miglera. I've, uh, I've read about you. And he was so generous, so nice guy. So at, at some stage, you may probably think like, oh, it's my competitor. I don't want to have anything with him. But it was the other way around. So he spent a lot of time holding my hand, teaching me everything about physiopathology, uh, development of the connection. So I, uh, I really owe him a lot of this. And we are now really close friends. I, I love him. And, and at some stage, uh, we have worked a lot of things, sometimes nice things, sometimes toughest things together. But yeah, we, we make the connection following the principles of Stephen Kuhn in the proximal DVA. And distally, uh, which is really nice, again, from this, all of this nice new development of techniques on PTVA, it's like anytime any physician like you or Miguel or whoever uh, in the world performs whatever, a next step uh, he shares and you learn and say, oh, have you used a stand in a distal DVA? I never use it. Uh, which sort of stand do you want, do you prefer to use? Uh, are you happy with them or not? And then... People are really generous. Even uh, physicians which are involved uh, in, in lymphal trials, 
they all think, I think the nice is we are all a community sharing the same uh, aim. It's like fighting against an social TI. Nothing to do with uh, AHOs or nothing to do with personalisms or, or companies. And this is amazing. This is amazing. Every time we perform a case, you are writing a new page on this blank book. It's true. Like, like I said, of the ones you do, each one that I do, I'm learning stuff. I mean, it's just so much to learn about. It's just amazing. That little foot has so many, the veins are just a whole new kind of category in that foot and you, you kind of learn what, what to know. I mean, yeah, at some stage we realized that the foot veins had name. <laughs> yeah. I, I did not know that before, you know? We won't go into too much detail of, of, of the nitty gritty of the technique. Again, it's 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 comp it's simple but complex, and you have such a good video online that I recommend the listeners to see. But do you do all these in an anagrade? Do, do you prep the whole leg and and do anagrade and prep the foot? Is that how you generally approach these? And you've pretty much gone to the double snare technique, right? You don't use the balloon anymore as a as a snare. You're using the double snare gun sight technique. It's just, it's more stable, right? You get, you get the needle, you get the wire. There's no, there's no question. It streamlines the whole thing because we always were concerned when you're retrieving the balloon, not to dislodge the wire, which was like a uh, time consuming. I know you're scared, right? You, you have that. Yeah, yeah, like, no, the, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, pull, 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 push, pull, push. Yeah. yeah I remember yeah, yeah. when I did a couple proximal ones, that part's the scariest when you have the wire and the balloon and you're just hoping you don't lose it. But yeah, with the double snare or, or, you know, the gun sight, basically you gun sight the fistula, the distal posterior tibial vein and distal posterior tibial artery. Where do you go? Do you go like near the malleolus? Do you go as distal as you can? Is there any ideal location that you're looking for? I always try to go near the malleolus, not usually puncturing at the level of the lateral planta, but uh, with uh, enough room just to be able to engage the lateral planta. And what I probably we are changing is that uh, we usually gain uh, venous accents at the level of the malleolus, but we have seen that you guys from the United States are like more prone, more keen on puncturing the arch, uh, ultrasound guided, which really streamlines the whole thing when you need to cross valves. Because I would say that this is uh, uh, a key point, crossing valves once you have performed the connection. We have a lot of consultations online or even uh, mail about uh, DVA. You know, this is a hot topic. Everybody wants to be the first one in the country to perform DVA, the whole stuff. And then I've never had any issue with uh, the connection. I would say like technical success rate is always like almost, you can never say uh, 100%. But the main issues are related to crossing valves and reaching the plantar. And once you, if you puncture, uh, you gain access on the plantar arch, this is uh, a lot easier. I, I agree. I, I basically would get lost coming from the anagrade venous side from posterior tibial vein. And then to get to the arch, there's so many different connections, perforators. It's hard. I mean, it's, it's not just the valves, but there can be different little connections. So something that's really helped me is, and it's surprising how big the vein is, but if you just ultrasound the sole of the foot, you'll see the lateral plantar vein. I mean, it's right there. It's almost like three, four millimeters big. It's it's big. And so you just access it and put a sheet. And then now your whole procedure, you, you took out like, you know, you can only go up one way, right? And 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 I don't know, that's... Yeah, yeah, definitely. I needed uh, Jill Somerset who told me, you are a dummy guy. Look, yeah. it's here. I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> From now on, I know where it is. 
<laughs> it's always weird to sticking the soul of the foot. You're just like, what if I know it? It's so, and out of the ones we've done, I've always been able to see the lateral plantar vein except one time and I did not see it. And that actually, that created a lot of difficulty. Um, so after you create, you, you create the anastomosis or once, once you create the connection, you said, of course, using the double snare technique, I think technical success should be near 100%. Do you use um, just plain old balloon angioplasty? Do you use a scoring or a cutting balloon? And then any other adjunctive techniques? No, we basically are performing this on-plane uh, balloon angioplasty for the distal uh, DVA, where we, you know, we never used a, a crossover stand. And then if we have any sort of residual stenosis, yeah, we go for a cutting balloon. And let me tell you, this is going to be like a secret. I'm not going to spoil the, the whole thing. We are nowadays thinking about IVL because it's not like when you're doing a heavily calcified vessel that you have calcium here, here. You just stick in a hole in the calcium itself. So we think, and we are testing this, that if you put a IVL there, it will make life a lot easier. That's a great point. I'm going to try that. Yeah, yeah. It is that calcium point. It, I mean, the balloons, I've gone up to like 20. I mean, it, it, it's still, you can get a residual stenosis depending how much calcium is there. Now, we've actually tried in two cases. Have you done any stenting like a stupera? No. Across it? No, not at Not yet. And no, people uh, like to use that. And probably if I had to use a stent, I would go for a superior stent. But no, we never, we had never used a stent there. What do you size the balloon when you're doing? Do you just, do you size it to the posterior tibial artery or do you try to go a little bit larger um, at the anastomosis? Yeah, we, you, you, we size for the posterior tibial, but usually going bigger, uh, going big. I would say like at least 3.5 at the connection and then for the vein, 4, 5, whatever. Perfect. Yeah, I was going to say for the veins, what are you at the plantar arch? I mean, what, what kind of size are you using when you're doing an angioplasty? Easily four or five. Four or five. It's pretty. Yeah, easily four or five. They're big veins. They're big veins, you know, inside. You know, we like to drain the arch in the first metatarsal, uh, the first dorsal vein on the, on the first foot. And for that, we use 3.5 quite easy. Wow. Okay. So you're putting 3.5 millimeters into the first metatarsal vein. That's, yeah. that's great. What are you doing for the valves? So are you just doing angioplasty? Are you using, you know, I know you've shown cutting. Yeah, we usually perform plain balloon angioplasty. And if needed, we use a cutting balloon. Okay. You don't feel a cutting balloon causes more damage, endothelial damage or whatnot that can restenose? We read about this from uh, the lymph flowers. People from lymph flow divide. <laughs> lymph flowers, I like that. <laughs> now they have some studies with uh, cadaveric uh, uh, veins, and they say that uh, ballooning the, uh, aggressively, you can end up having this uh, some of uh, endothelium uh, damage. But I've seen a lot of live cases from lymph flow device. They do the integrate. They are more reluctant to use the integrate uh, cutting balloon in the lateral plantar or the arch, and then sometimes or, or most time ending up with a balloon angioplasty because you cannot treat the remaining bulge. I would say I'm not concerned at all because we usually talk about all of this stuff, but the reality is that if you have a look to patency rates, which are the Achilles heel of these procedures, basically if you have a look in Alps, which is uh, the, the largest series we have, main patency rate is 3.4 months, four months. So I'm not concerned about damaging the endothelium or talk about a recanalization of full posterior tibial artery. 
we usually have longer patency rates for a long for a long occlusion of posterior tibial. So if you have any issue, I will go again later on. Uh, I'm not concerned at all. We are not aiming for super long patency rates. You just want the healing. Yeah. Do you bring your patients back for a regular and do you like for a routine angiogram in four weeks? Yeah. Or or is it just based clinically, or do you do it routinely? No, 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 systematically. We have uh, talked about this, and this is changing. There's a lot of physicians, again, in the United States. I know you use clinically driving and geography, but we perform it systematically, like one month following the procedure to see if we need to focalize, uh, do some curling at some collaterals or whatever, and to see what's going on. And we check them. Uh, we perform a duplex ultrasound every other week in our clinics. And it's interesting. It's a low resistance waveform. It's a, you know, that's how it should look, right? Because it, yeah. it's a cool look on ultrasound. When we talk about patencies, again, uh, so like you feel like I don't really understand sometimes why do we have these uh, lower or uh, low patency rates? Sometimes you may think that, yeah, okay, you have a five millimeters graph below the knee. It's uh, condemned to have a low patency. But if you think about hybrid or you think about a distal DBA, you have a material with a low resistant drainage. Why do we have, and it's really difficult to understand because it may probably should be kept like a standard uh, AV fistula for dialysis. We still don't know, to be honest. I don't know why with these low resistance territories, we still have so these low patency rates because the runoff should be sure. It should be great. It should be like just going. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't know. We don't know. There's so much more to learn about DVAs, but we know it works. <laughs> so that, that's that's a good thing. What about, you mentioned coiling. Do you ever coil perforators or anything on the first time around? Or do you get the drainage to the arch and the metatarsal and that's your end point? Yeah, that's it. So the thing is, in my mind, when you perform the AV fistula, you need to keep it running. So I don't really want to coil or focalize or whatever. I just need to keep it patent in order to give time to uh, develop the new network system. So we have seen that this the stenation syndrome is related to uh, geopartizing the drainage of the foot. So I, I really try to avoid any coiling in the procedure. And then one month later, yeah, we try to focalize as much as possible. Okay. Okay. So when you do that follow-up angiogram, you're pretty often, are you coiling and, and distributing the forward of the forefoot? Yeah. But, but again, this is the way we do it. Because with uh, last week talking with Bruno, he told me that, well, basically we perform really uh, free work coiling compared with uh, uh, the initial, our initial experience, and he mentioned like 30% of the cases, which are not that many. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah, that's not as many for sure. Where do you see most of the failure mechanisms on your follow-up angiogram? Is it stenosis at the creation point or is it in the veins? I would say we are basically different patterns. And I love this, this nice paper published by John Radbach about patents of failure um, following DVH. is I strongly recommend it. It's really beautiful, really nice. I would say basically you usually have issues on the inflow. This is one, uh, number one. Number two, at the connection sometimes. And sometimes they are really stubborn valves. One is the one really at the level of the ankle, just at the ankle, which is like, I, I hate it. <laughs> and a second one, which is quite typical, is at bit foot. There are two stubborn valves that usually that that usually we uh, re-PTA quite often. Yeah, that, I know the, the one that's at the ankle, I know I've seen that happen uh, right there. I don't know if that's where like that ligament is, the, the, the lacinate, lacinate ligament, or I don't know, but I, I get a stenosis there for sure. 
and one thing that's why we tried for two cases and it's worked pretty interesting is, is we've put a supera, we deployed it in a retrograde fashion across the anastomosis and then into the lateral plantar vein, um, like, like using a 60 or 80 millimeter uh, length. And it's been interesting. Those two worked out really, really well. Um, so I don't know if we're going to do that routinely, but it's something I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts about doing that super. I think IVL is a really cool idea too, right over there, you know? I'm super fan of superas then, uh, the FEMPOP segment, and I've never used it, as I told you, in uh, distally, but it sounds quite wise. I, I would say, like, it mean, it, to me, it's quite, uh, it sounds reasonable. And uh, we also had, like, people using, like, laser or even the pierce. I, I read a report from Soladandu performing a pierce in this stubborn valve. So, yeah, plenty of ways just to deal with all of this stuff. And again, we're all learning, right? Um, well, a couple things more. So other than the routine one-month follow-up angiogram, do you use, um, do you do a single antiplatelet and blood thinner? Is that what you, do you do a, like Plavix and, and uh, an anticoagulation as well? Or how do you manage these patients medically? Well, I, I know this, is, again, is con this controversial. I know, guys, you there, you like the dual antiplatelet therapy regime. I follow this at uh, the anticoagulation and the single antiplatelet therapy. So we kept them uh, under an anti or on anticoagulation and aspirin. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Other than um, thrombosis or restenosis, one of the complications we we had in two instances in our cases, we had orthostatic hypotension. Have you seen that happen? Orthostatic hypotension following. We had two patients had it. It was pretty significant too. Really? Yeah. Okay. And it was both in the the patients that we stented. And so. So I was going to see if you had seen any of that. And this was in a distal DVA or in a proximal one? In a distal. Oh, really? And it was it was after the procedure, but it was only in those two patients that we had stented. So I didn't know if that was something that you've seen with your larger population of, of treating distal. Have you seen orthostatic? It was no. it was significant where we had to keep the patient in the hospital for a while and 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 work on it, but it it worked it worked out okay. This is, this is also interesting. It's like we use, uh, when we have uh, in a standard uh, arterial revascularization, we use quite a lot uh, nitro and the, the systemic effect of 200 mics of nitro is nil, none. But uh, which is really interesting, when you're performing a DVA, at least in our experience, and you perform, you put nitro to deal with spasm, which is quite of uh, usual, the systemic effect of this nitro is massive. I just need to, to keep an eye on your on the blood pressure. Yeah, I don't know. I, again, I don't know why. Probably the connection with the vein is, is more is, is straightforward. But uh, we are more uh, cautious with uh, the nitro, with the DVF, uh, than compared with uh, standard arterial revascularization at end. That's a good tip. Yeah, because, yeah, you see spasm in the veins and you give nitro. And, and yeah, you're right. They, they do um, respond to it a lot more than they would have in just a normal arterial system. Now, at what point do you say that it's a clinical failure that DVA did not work? Is it is it just if the wound keeps on getting bigger or you don't, you know, like you said, average is anywhere between four to six months for wound healing. Do you always just push it all the way to see, you know, get it to the six month, eight month mark? And then if it's not healing, then call it. Well, we push them up to the end. I would say like if I had a seven uh, months still an open wound, I keep on trying to keep my DBA open uh, as long as necessary. And then I would say like probably 90% of mine are already uh, clot. 
but I've already have achieved good healing. And which is really interesting to see when you have a, uh, the figure from, let's say, Alps. Once you uh, raise your TCPO2, kept raise uh, over the time, regardless you have a pitting or not. And this has to do with the new recruitment system and the connections with the remaining arterial system. So we follow them as, as long as necessary. When do I uh, realize that I had a failure? When we have progression of the necrosis and, and I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, there's no doubt that you have failed because if you have a progression of your necrosis, regardless you have an, an open DVA, this is the end. Yeah, that's it. That's, that makes sense. Well, good. I mean, we covered a lot of info. I actually have even more questions, but I know that it will just take, I think we need a part two for this for sure. <laughs> well, you know, there's so much here. I, I'm like, again, I learned so much each time. I, I really appreciate all the kind of words of wisdom that you're giving. Any other kind of tidbits of information you want to give our listeners regarding distal DVA, some things that you've learned or just some kind of words of wisdom that you have for everyone? Well, I would say like, if you want to start doing your cases, you have a lot of people there which you can just text or connect. Uh, we have a lot of like, hey man, this is my case. Do you think this is a good candidate? We just check it out. Uh, we enjoy, this is our job. Uh, we love this. Because sometimes if you read a paper, it's, it's really difficult just to get the, the finest thing, the, the essential uh, part of the technique that may, you may probably lose a lot of details. So you can contact whoever. There's a lot of guys performing amazing uh, cases at uh, DVA uh, worldwide, and they are all eager to get to share their experience. And this is what I do. Whenever I have a doubt, it's just text. All of these guys, the, the US guys, the Italian guys, and then they always, uh, there's a lot of brainstorming there and they give you advice. And then let me tell you something that is probably one of my uh, rewardless experience as a physician. Uh, once I got a, a consultancy uh, from Norway, a guy, a colleague from Norway, so a great guy. So he asked me for a case. We commended the case. We planned the case. He took the patient to the OR and then I text uh, that night. I said, hey, how did it go? I said, like, I couldn't make it. I said, why? Well, we made the connection, but we couldn't advance into the uh, plantar arch. So I said, well, you need to try to look for this connection, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Say, so, okay, he brought him uh, back to the OR and some stage I was Friday morning in my clinic. Uh, and then I got a call in my cell phone, George from Norway. I said, like, why? What's going on? He told me, you know, I'm in uh, the OR, in the cattle lab with the patient on the table and I cannot cross. And I told him, like, show me a picture of uh, your screen. Uh, what's going on? He sent me a picture on WhatsApp. This is WhatsApp, like, like basic stuff like that. Like, I saw there, I said, oh, why don't you face your catheter? And let's just draw a line with a standard uh, editing pro program, like one euro program. Uh, just face your catheter towards that direction. He faced the catheter and he could cross. That was like so short, like, I couldn't believe that. The telemedicine, low cost, the high standard thing, really with one euro. This is the sort of stuff you can get from all of this family, getting step-by-step uh, -step new uh, horizons in DVA. And they all are really, really amazing. Uh, one, one really rewarding thing I've just met over this uh, long way is like, people are amazing. You look at them, I remember that it's like I was used to look at them at uh, the panelists are like, oh, these super big guys, no? They this like like gods. 
And I remember once in Link, there was a session uh, about DVA and I was fool enough just to raise my hand, just to uh, complain about not having uh, off-the-shelf devices there. And at some stage, Miguel Montero was there. He was leaving the, the auditorium because he has another talk in, a, in, an, in another room. I was at the aisle sitting there next to the microphone. And then he just stopped there and I say like, it's Miguel Montero. And he say, man, what you say, it's really interesting. I, I've tried your, your, your procedure and it works. And from then we are really close friends and he promoted me for doing a lot of stuff. He has again, super generous to have me there. And he was nice enough just to stop uh, next to that guy, the, the anonymous guy. <laughs> so that was a really amazing. So people usually really kind, really nice people wanting just to uh, give you a hand whenever you need it. Uh, so don't be shy, just text them, ask them. They will be really, really, really uh, uh, happy to help whoever. Absolutely. You make a really good point. I mean, I do think the endovascular CLI community that's especially on social media, I think everyone is so collaborative and helpful. And, and you really, again, this is what social media has done where I could just message you even to invite you to talk, right? I messaged you on Twitter, be like, hey, what, can you, you know, come be on Backtable with us? And even just questions, everything, you know, it's just it's just the availability and, and, and everything is so awesome. And, and we're lucky to be practicing medicine in this day and age. We're lucky for you to share this technique and share more. And, and really, I'd love to learn more and more from you. So thank you so much for everything you do for the endovascular community. Oh, it was like, for me, it was uh, amazing. So this week I was overexcited, like, oh, I've been invited. I've been invited. And actually, I talked to Lorenzo Patroni, which is a super friend of mine. I said, like, Lorenzo, they have invited me. I was really overwhelmed about this whole thing. Aww. This is another guy who we just found over this long journey. Uh, I love him. Lorenzo is super supportive and we share a lot of our things together. Oh, thank you, August. Lorenzo is great. Thank you so much. for your, We'll definitely have you back on. Like I said, I think we need a part two. I, I literally have another 20 questions that we didn't get to. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time. And I know you're in the hospital right now recording to have a quiet room. So and, and it's like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock over there in Spain. So I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. And Thanks to the Backtable team. Thank you, Nick, for being our engineer today. And uh, I really, really look forward to talking to you again and then getting more advice from you for my upcoming procedures, August. Thank you. Thank you very much, Shavina. It was really nice, uh, quiet, like really relaxed, like being at home with a close friend. Thank you so much. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Mood. 
find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.